Welcome to the Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. We are thrilled to be joined by one Andrew Stover today, Director of Sales and Marketing at Siema Wines and founder of Vino 50, the Great American Road Trip. Uh, native Midwesterner, Andrew, uh, dove into the hospitality field after graduating from George Washington University. Uh, his tenure as an advertising consultant at a local travel magazine forged a passion for wines from undersung corners of the country. At Vino 50, Andrew has become the patron saint of the other 47 boutique wines from unlikely states like Arizona, Colorado, Hawaii, Idaho, Missouri, Michigan, New York, Texas, and beyond. In 2015, he was named one of America's 40 Under 40 Tastemakers by Wine Enthusiast Magazine for his commitment to diversifying the American wine landscape. Thank you for joining us, Stover. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Um, for those I'm ready who, to drink. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't get ahead of yourself, man. I mean, you, you can start drinking whenever you like, too. That, that is, uh, right. Don't, don't wait for invitations. So. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, the premise here, blessedly simple, uh, we are sharing wine, one with the other. Typically, that entails one bottle each, but uh, we have a lot of ground to cover for the sake of uh, a massive winemaking country, and uh, we're going to take it uh, two bottles uh, each this time out. Andrew is pouring a Syrah blend from Caduce Cellars in Arizona alongside a Rhone White blend from McPherson out of Texas Hill Country. Uh, I'm following suit with uh, one of my favorite domestic Gruner Veltliners from uh, the folks at Galen Glen out of eastern Pennsylvania and a Pinot Blanc from Left Foot Charlie at uh, the north end of Michigan. Uh, we will trade thoughts about life and wine, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to our guest. If you like the sound of what we're drinking, all the wines will be available for sale. Uh, and I do mean that. Sometimes we, uh, we go back on that uh, just for the sake of the rarity of what we're pouring. But everything here will be available for sale at Revelers Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar, directly across the street from our Line Hotel studios in Adams Morgan. Uh, Andrew, before we launch into the bottles themselves, a few questions about, you know, your journey in oh, wine. No, I feel, you know, because I feel like, uh, you know, knowing you as a, as a sales and marketing professional, I feel like that's really the only thing you could have done with yourself. You know, you are, you are like selling water to a well. Um, Ice to Eskimos. Yeah, exa <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, why wine? Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, when you were reading my bio, like it is a really interesting, you know, a lot of people in this industry, we have a lot of really interesting stories how we got there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that, you know, it's not like I woke up and one day when I was in college and said, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a wine you know, wine sommelier and, and importer and distributor. Um, it was it was really that first career that I had in 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 travel and tourism and working with hotels and restaurants and on the marketing side that I got exposed to fine dining, restaurants, wine, and I was really interested in wine. And you know, I would say that the you know one person that was kind of 
like in the back of my mind who got me really interested in like America and like an America making wine in places beyond like California or Washington mm -hmm. and Oregon was Nadine Brown. Mm -hmm. um, I remember meeting Nadine Brown from Charlie Palmer's Steak in 2004. So we're talking, you know, 18 years ago. And I remember this is when Brian Voltaggio was still the chef. Oh, wow. I and mean, this is like, you know, 2004. This Come on. Ages ago. You're and, like a baby. Uh, no, I, I was, uh, <laughs> um, I, I had yet to enter the, the restaurant industry, though, yes. But 2004, I was there for an event uh, with the travel magazine and hospitality. And I remember they had just kind of opened Charlie Palmer. I don't remember what year they opened, but on the hill. Yeah, so um, Charlie, Charlie Palmer is this, you know, kind of bastion of the Washington social scene in the shadow of uh, the U.S. Capitol. And Correct. Yeah, it, it is, you know, a power players, CNBC scene, sort of steakhouse scene. Exactly. And, and the thing that really, and this was Charlie, and Nadine, you know, had to bring it to fruition, yeah. was Charlie wanted a wine from every state. Because, oh, you know, cool. if we're going to be on Capitol Hill... We need to have a wine from every member's district or, we you know, at to, least one from every state. We need to pander to every constituency. Right, exactly. Like and, that. you know, it was really hard. And, you know, that's a you should actually have her on one time because the whole process of her doing that and, like, having to, like, get stuff shipped to her and, like, the permits. Yeah, and but, it, I mean, it should be said Washington, D.C. is a um, uniquely um, well-suited market for that. Uh, project because it's, it's a bit of a wild west in terms of the laws governing uh, wine sales here right. and there's a lot of freedom to bring in your own juice if it's not right. already being sold by someone else. Right. And so Nadine was doing that and I'll never forget this because it was you know a little bit of an epiphany moment where I got really interested in the concept of outside of the west coast you know because I was learning about wine. I'm yeah. going to all these events and trying different things from Europe blah blah and then so Nadine is doing this event, and she's pouring none other than the Sawtooth Snake River Valley Idaho Syrah with Snake River Valley Farms Wagyu beef that Brian had, you know, oh, cooked up. So like, wow, you know, yeah. what an interesting thought. And, you know, I just started thinking about it more, and it was a couple years later. So I went through a SOM program with the International Sommelier Guild, mm -hmm. um, started kind of that in about 2004, and... Finally graduated with the, you know, certificate, which is like the equivalent of advanced if you're thinking about the court. Yeah. Because the exam I had to take was 12 hours over two days, different parts, blind yeah. tasting, uh, writing essays that had to be in like proper English form, kind of, so kind of like the, uh, the master of wine. Yeah. And insanity. Like, so I passed this exam in 2006 and then I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with it? So I started consulting with restaurants. Um, I did a number of like openings and my kind of my home base consulting project was a restaurant called Oya, yeah. which is no more, but it opened in 2005, closed in 2015, and it was based in Chinatown at 9th and H, right next door to Jose Andres's Zitinia. And during that little project is where I'm starting to go out and like travel and taste some of these wines. I'm from Michigan. You mentioned that I'm from the Midwest. So whenever I go back to my parents, I'm like, okay, you're going to drive me to northern Michigan so we can taste wine. Yeah, I mean, how, how, how far is Grand Traverse from where you uh, where uh, grew my, up? Where I grew up. So I grew up near Grand Rapids, which is um, sort of the largest city on the west side. So kind of central, lower, lower Michigan. Yeah. So Traverse City is like two hours. Okay. That's where Leffa Charlie is and you know, other people that are doing cool stuff. Um, and then also down by closer to Chicago, 
well, near the Indiana border, there's the southwest Michigan shore, which is, again, about two hours, where yeah. there's another little, you know, bastion of things that are happening. Um, I don't know, Domain Berrien, um, Wincroft. I don't know if you've had any of these wines. No, I mean, like, to the extent that I know... We don't see them here, so... Yeah, to the extent that I know that scene at all, it uh, uh, has everything to do with the fact that they make some really stunning Riesling. In, right, and that's that's up yeah, in northern in, Michigan. In, yeah, exactly, in the, like, Old Mission Peninsula and, and Grand Traverse area. But, you know, these are two distinct different regions. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, yeah. And, okay, so, you know, I was doing a lot of this research, and I was go into places like Arizona. I wanted to go to Idaho. I just like, start traveling. I'm going on these trips and I want to find these wines, mm-hmm. you know, and then people refer me to things. I mean, um, that's how I met McPherson. Um, I know a wine writer in Texas named Jeff Siegel, who's known as the wine curmudgeon. And he is a you know, prolific writer. And one day he contacted me and said, Hey, you need to meet McPherson. And so be it. That's how that happened. Um, so, <sighs> You know, just to kind of sum it up, it's like, so I started in like media, I segued into restaurants for eh, a good seven to eight years, doing a lot of consulting, and then Siema Wines, which is an importer and distributor, they came to me and said, because I was a customer, I was buying wine from them. Yeah. They said, hey, we we read these articles about you. We saw this article in the Washingtonian about you, and Dave McIntyre wrote about you in the Washington Post with all this American wine that you're getting sent to you at your restaurant. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, and I get the sense that the list at Oya just grew into a catalog that you ultimately, you know, started selling to other restaurants. Uh, kind of, yeah. 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 I mean... Now, uh, something that interests me, though, you know, um, and, and I have a similar tendency myself uh, for the sake of, you know, the wines that I love. Most people, when they start learning about wine, you know, they start with the heavy hitters. They start with the Burgundies. They start with the Bordeaux. You know, to the extent that they're learning about American wine... You know they're starting out west. Um, sure, sure. Uh, you know, but I already. Do you have to know too that I already knew a lot about all these things? I yeah, mean, but, I had already been through the Somme exactly, program. But, but clearly, in terms of you know what excited you, it oh, wasn't it, it was, wasn't the established players. It was it was the underdogs. So I like you know, different things. Yeah. Do you do you kind of um, identify with the underdog spirit for the sake of these you know lesser well-known corners of the domestic wine world? You know, one of the big things that drove me crazy as a buyer was that I felt like, um, and this is true, the wine industry, as a you know, not not the producers, but the like the wholesale industry, the importing industry, it, it's not designed to promote small producers as a whole. Yes, there's plenty, especially today. And so this is what drove me crazy as a buyer was that, you know, I'm getting visited by, you know, we're not going to name names, but, you know, these big distributors, these big conglomerates that are trying to force me into buying, you know, wines that I can find in grocery stores. And that was like one thing that drove me crazy because, you know, we all know that you're going to pay more for a bottle of wine in a restaurant. And that's because our costs of doing business are higher and the insurance, the staffing, whatever. You know, and so I wanted to find more boutique stuff. And back, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't, we had choices, but we don't, not like today. I mean, today there's so many more small distributors. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, so, we're in this golden age of availability for the sake no, we of are. wines made in, in minuscule quantities, both for the sake of domestic bottlings and, and for the sake of international ones. And, but, and, you know, the market has 
But that's okay. because the consumers demanded it, and yeah. also the buyers. Yeah. So, like, you well, know, no, but it's also it's also because of the legwork that you did in that's true. Um, you know, for the sake of connecting these you know smaller artisans on the ground to uh, larger available markets that were interested in buying their juice. But does that make sense? Like, I no, mean, no, totally. totally. Like, as far as the underdog thing, like, I just thought it was fascinating that like I can go and try these world class wines from say Michigan. And I think, too, one of the things that's exciting about the concept of the underdog regions is that some of them, and that's where we're going to go with some of these producers that we'll talk about today, is that they're not trying to recreate what is going on in California. Yeah, well, no, and I, I, uh, in reading you know, some of your uh, you know, kind of previous interviews for the sake of, of prepping for this episode, I got the sense equally that you wanted to be able to tell different stories. You know, you wanted to, you know, as a, as a marketing professional, you wanted a, a narrative that was different than, you know, another Cali Cap. Right, uh, right. And, 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 you know, yeah. I get so tired of, I mean, but this happens everywhere. I mean, even in our backyard. There are people that have a lot of money, want to make a winery, open a winery, plant a vineyard, and they're planting, like, you know, their favorites, Chardonnay, Cabernet. It's the people that stop and they say, hey, that's just maybe not going to work here in our soil, our climate. Um, you know, clearly, if we're going to talk about, like, you know, Michigan, they're not going to be able to grow Cabernet Sauvignon and ripen it to the same degree that they can do it in, say, Bordeaux, California, Washington State, and so on. Yeah, you're not going to out you know, Napa Napa in, you know, yeah. old mission. And why? And, you know, another thing, it's, it's a quote that, you know, we're not talking about Virginia wine today, but... Jenny McLeod, the owner of Chrysalis, mm -hmm. you know, and she talks about her journey of why she does what she does. She didn't want to be like the 300th best Chardonnay in the world of the U.S. or what have you, like something that's already been done time and time again. Let's do something different. Let's do something that we can be known for that is not only a world-class wine, but also shows the guest that it's something different that we can say, hey, and be proud of it, that America isn't just California Cabernet and Big Reds or California Chardonnay, that, hey, we can make American Viognier that's world-class, or, you know, in Brian at, at Left Foot Charlie in Michigan, we can make world-class Riesling. Or and for, you know, Jenny's sake, tell the story of... of the Norton. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah I mean, a, that's a bizarre... I should have brought a Norton today, but yeah. I didn't want to focus on the... The backyard. No, you know? no, and I, I think I think the this showcases a diversity of your portfolio, and and for the sake of, um, you know, the stories that we tell uh, in this in this format, you know, uh, we we have tasted some distinctly local wines from Maryland and Virginia, and it's fun to um, try some some offerings from slightly further afield, which is a great segue for the sake of a wine from your home state. And I want to yes. start there. So Yeah, let's do it. Um, uh, we are going to kick things off of Left, left Foot Charlie. So uh, unusual name uh, here. Uh, and uh, it's an homage to uh, nickname Brian Ulbrich, uh, who's the, the winemaker had as a kid. Um, and apparently he was uh, very awkward and had like a club foot. You know, had like an inward leaning left foot. He and, tripped over himself. Yeah, exa exactly. <laughs> and um, and so uh, you know, they named him Left Foot. And uh, he 
kind of ran with that and, uh, you know, and ran with it to an extent that uh, um, is the name of his brand uh, to this day. And, and this is an interesting concept for the, for the sake of a winery. So it's, um, you know, kind of like a wine bistro and, and you know, they have a restaurant, uh, they make wine there. Um, they work, they don't have any vineyards of their own. They work exclusively with local growers. Um, and, and you know why that is, right? I, I don't know why. Well, if you actually. if you look and see where the winery is, the winery is in the old Northern Michigan Insane Asylum, which yes. is now turned condo slash retail. Naturally, so it's this yes, naturally, and it's haunted. Um, and he's in the back building, which was the laundromat. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of an it's an urban winery. Yeah, it's in, an urban in a, winery. In a so know, no vineyards on site. Yeah, not not a massive urban area. Although I could see you know the. Um, residents of the asylum like tending vines like recreationally you know uh, but the asylum's gone yeah okay okay it's a condos uh, yeah, now yeah there you go. or maybe 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 like a victory garden for the sake of uh, oh the condo God. the condo residents oh but um at any rate uh, uh they work with cool climate varietals so um you're in uh kind of northwestern michigan here along the west bank of lake michigan um and uh, it's possible to work with vinifera grapes because uh, you're dealing with two peninsulas. Um, uh, Old Mission is this, you know, thin little finger of a peninsula, and then uh, Lilani, uh, or Lilanaw. Lilanaw, Lilanaw. Sorry, it's Sam hard to say. Sam Samsonite, Samsonite, uh, Lilanaw. Two miles wide, um, 17 miles yeah. long. And uh, and so the, the lake has a moderating influence, um, uh, both... Um, in the winter and uh, in the summer um, for the sake of delaying bud break, which is important because um, you don't want to open your buds as a plant too early and be exposed to potential late frosts. And uh, so it's this island, uh, you know, kind of agriculturally that is capable of growing and ripening uh, European grapevine, uh, Vitis vinifera, um, in a way that's impossible um, at that latitude elsewhere. It's elsewhere 45 in the pillar, by the way. Oh, sorry? Yeah, it's the 45th parallel. Yeah, it's kind of madness. Um, so it's, you know, it, but it's only possible because of the lake. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they work with hybrids as well, but um, uh, Left for Charlie and uh, a lot of local winemakers um, really made their name with vinifera wines. And this is uh, Pinot Blanc, um, fruit source from multiple growers. It's styled out in stainless steel, and it's just like whistle clean and slammable. You know, this, so a little backstory on this and how I know Brian, it's kind of funny because the first time I met his wine, so to speak, was through a very prolific local wine consumer named Jim Stutzman. And Jim Stutzman was, was this guy, he'd been with the Washington, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, and I'd only, you know, I only interacted with him for maybe a couple years, and he he passed. But he was friends with Dave McIntyre with the Washington Post, the wine critic, and he was also like really good friends with Tony Quinn here at Cleveland Park Liquors. Mm -hmm. And Jim was an avid motorcycle guy. You know, he was he was in the opera. I, for, if, I forgot if he was a percussionist or something. But in his retirement, he was like going all over when he could. You know on his motorcycle visiting these weird wine regions. Yeah, and cool. He introduced me to this wine. I forgot the year. And that's how I knew about Brian. Because I'd never been to Left Foot on some of my previous trips up there. And then I went and I met him. I met Brian because I had tried this wine with, with Mr. Stutzman and said, Brian, we love your wine. We want your wine. He goes, dude, I'm so small. Dude, I'm so small. I have no wine. And this was true. It took seven well, years of begging. Yeah, honestly, it's like uh, you know, 
Grand Traverse itself is a major resort area, and they could probably sell out their production for the sake of on-premise sales pretty, oh, pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Bryant, but we'll see. The thing is now, they're getting bigger, but because more growers come online yeah. that he wants to work with. Um, and yes, even today, he could probably sell every single bottle up there in Traverse City. And, but he likes the cachet of getting out there and being able to have his wines on restaurant menus in New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, of course, which is kind of their local. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, their local market for a big restaurant town would be Chicago. Um, but then here, too. Um, I think those are the four markets that he, he's in. But it took me seven years. Seven oh, wow. years of begging from when we first met to be able to get the first bottle here. Um, it's a long time. Yeah, no, you no. Know, it's, a it's begging. Been, and they're not, I mean, he's not the only person making, um, oh, no. you no, know, no. Wine, worth, wine worth drinking there. You know, Chateau Grand Traverse in particular comes to mind up there. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a, a, a burgeoning and really fun um, uh, wine scene uh, in, in, that, in that corner of the country. Uh, I just think, you know, he's one of the, the really leading lights. Well, he is because I feel like it, it's him and there's some other guys that are really pushing this, like, cool climate, you know, variety. And even for Brian, like, Brian rarely makes red. Every once in a blue moon, he'll make some Gamay or some Blau. Usually he'll make just Rosé out of the Blau, Blau Frankish. Um, but he's, you can see, too, like, you've tried some of his other wines before, yeah. right? Okay. So you know his passion for making these cool climate whites. And, you know, just take this Pinot Blanc, for instance. I mean, it's world class. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's delightful. It's, it's at, like, 12 plus percent 12, alcohol. 12 half, yeah. yeah, it's um, is wildly freshing, but it, it doesn't, it's not austere in, in, in the least, it's, you know. So, the it's kind of fat. The, the difficulty in a cooler climate region is, is getting you know sufficient ripening to elevate your wines above you know green apple bombs. And uh, this has this fabulous like pear cup sort of sensibility to it, yeah, um, almost like borderline honeydew. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. But there's some fatness. And, of course, it's a little warmer. I, you know, we didn't want it too cold because it's so cold outside. Um, but there's some fatness on this yeah. that, I mean, yeah, it's not Alsatian. No. But it has some texture like Alsace, but it's not as ripe, no, I mean, and, 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 like, and that's something that Pinot Blanc brings to the party. Pinot Blanc can get, like, over-opulent oh, right, no. um, yeah, uh, yeah. At, at, at times. But uh, I, I think it's a really you know, welcome dimension uh, for the sake of, uh, you know, otherwise racy lean uh, sort of sort of wine. And I think the other thing that um, you get for the, or the, the opportunities that emerge for the sake of seeking out wine from places that aren't, you know, California in particular or, or Washington, um, is that you're able to engage different sorts of climates and, and you know. And soils, too. Yeah, you totally. Know? So, I mean, this is gl glacial till for the most part. Yeah. Um, uh, but. Uh, lots of sand, lots of rocks, very well draining. Yeah. Um, um, which, is, which is pretty ideal in, in, in an otherwise, like, occasionally pretty wet um, uh, environment. Um, or at least not yeah. as, not oh. as. Not as dry as classically Mediterranean climates, but uh, yeah. certainly not certainly not as wet as the Mid-Atlantic. I would say, you know, like this area would be, I'd compare it more to like, you know, parts of Austria and Germany as far as climate, because the summer can be quite dry there. You know, maybe they get the pop-up thunderstorms. It's been a while. I haven't lived there in like over 20 years, so I can't remember all of the, but it's not humid. Um, I think too, you know, with the lake, which is so important, you mentioned for the bud break late, but also for the ripening in the late. I mean, they can 
probably go to like October. Yeah. And because, you know, the lake stays warmer and it's pretty deep around there. So it takes a while for that to cool down. Um, not to mention, too, you know, we hear about this in, you know, Germany, too. Like the, the sun and in the Finger Lakes, too, the, the sun reflection, when the sun's lower, it reflects back onto the grapes to help keep them warmer and ripen. Um, so you have that, too. This is like two miles wide. It's yeah. like, you know, depending on where the vineyard site, and some of them are really close to the water. Um, I mean, two miles is not very long anyway, right? Like, away from water. It's water on both sides. When you look at the map, it's like it's yeah, just it's this just, weird little... It's just thin little finger, you know, kind of... Uh, all glacial debris, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, emerging from, you know, the you know, skull of the cap of, of Michigan. Um, and well, it was dug out by the glacial, the glacier, the glaciers of the last ice age. Yeah. Know? Yeah. A lot of the same forces that form the great lakes themselves. And, um, it is this, you know, special corner of the world. Uh, you know, Grand Traverse in particular is like a huge resort town, um, for great for the summer. Don't go now, <laughs> especially today. Uh, yeah. Cause you yeah, know yeah, what's yeah. happening up there. Yeah. Yeah. I've They're done. probably getting two feet of snow, uh, which actually incidentally is, is equally beneficial for the vines because the snow, uh, has an insulating effect, uh, for, for the vines in the midst of, uh, temperatures that might otherwise kill them off. Um, uh, that is, the, that is true over the course Absolutely. of the winter. Um, and, and I like that, you know, again, this is a cool climate region. Um, and they're leaning into that, you know, they're not trying to be, um, anything other than than themselves, and and I like that for each of these you know uh, estates that we are um, kind of touching upon today. They each have their own kind of identity, and, and yeah. they're each kind of figuring out what works in their corner of the world, um, you know, and uh, pushing that forward and advancing that in a way that you know doesn't necessarily. Um, you know, mimic what is going on uh, elsewhere in the country. You know, maybe they have an idea, you know, for the sake of, of uh, you know, northern Michigan, to my mind, has always been a little more Germanic. And, and those Rieslings have always tasted more like Mosul Valley Rieslings to me, you know, for the sake of this, like, ripe green, like this, like, you know, raging acid and crunchy green apple streak. Um, uh, we're going to turn our attention now to uh, a wine from Pennsylvania, uh, from the Rust Belt. Uh, this is from. Is it the Rust Belt? It is. It's definitely. Come on, you're just outside Allentown. I think it's definitely. I don't the know. Rust Belt. Um, uh, I, and I don't know. Like I hope. I don't know. Rust Belt sounds kind of pejorative. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I think could, of the Rust Belt's more up by like Ohio, Lake Erie. Yeah, yeah. Like. No, I think Cleveland I think, into. I think Allentown. I think Allentown qualifies. I mean, I guess I think, it like, was. This, uh, uh, it's the other end of the belt. Yeah. Like Bethlehem, Allentown. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going with it, Stover. Um, no, please uh, go with it. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, this is from the Lehigh Valley. So Lehigh Valley is a massive region. Um, and it, um, you know, encompasses tributaries of uh, the Delaware River, um, uh, uh, largely. And um, we are dealing with Galen Glen here. And uh, they're, they're good friends. Um, this is, is ostensibly my second wine. Well, I was going to say, you were the one that introduced me to this and how badly you wanted this wine. Oh, this, this particular cuvee, yeah. This cuvee, yeah. I mean... Yeah, so you were already, you were already selling their wines. I was already so. selling her wines, but I yeah. never had this. Because yeah. Because it's in such small quantities. In yeah. fact, what, oh, it's 2020. So there was no 21. Yeah, so and we are drinking uh, one of uh, the... And you have all of it, by the way. There, oh, there is no go. more. It's an exclusive engagement. This is an exclusive <laughs> with, I, with I you. Usually, that, and and I, I will say, like, that usually... Uh, I, I usually kind of... Oh, my God. 
I usually cry bullshit when um, uh, Psalms make that claim, like, you know, this is, a, you know, a proprietary one, you know, this, this is, you know, a limited engagement and stuff like that, because, you know, usually distributors will sell to just about anybody that, that wants to run something. But well, anybody that has a checkbook, you yeah. know, and a license, <laughs> you know, you want some wine, we got it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. This- and, and I mean, on top, of, on top of that, like, you know, I don't want to stake too much of a claim to any of this shit, because I didn't make it. You know, this well, is, no, this that's is not, true. This is not my juice. But you know, at, at best, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a, uh, you know, kind of creative curator, um, and uh, so uh, these are um, uh, amazing, um, you know, vines. Uh, this is Grunewald Liner. It's from a suitcase clone. So um, this is Galen and uh, Sarah Troxel. Uh, the farm has been in uh, Galen's family for. Um, Six generations. Um, well, they're on to the seventh now. Seven. Oh, okay. Seventh they generation with their daughter. Six on the labels, but okay. now that their daughter Erin, she's a seventh. So they've just started promoting. Now we're seventh generation. Oh, brand. So we're talking. You know, I don't want to eighteen twenties. Yeah, I don't want to cheat anybody on no, a generation. No, no. That's very important. And I mean, you're talking. So uh, they kind of modeled themselves after uh, a lot of Austrian producers, and um, you know, to say six or seven generations in Austria is, is you know, not nothing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, not unremarkable, but you know there are a lot of producers that go whack way further than that. It's so, like Martin Middlebach, yeah, with, uh, yeah, you know, taking Serhoff. It's founded in eleven seventy six. Yeah, it's, 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 it gets pretty obnoxious. Um, but uh, at any rate, um, uh, they were chemists and um, a, an engineer by training, uh, but uh, they had lived abroad in Germanic countries and fell in love with Germanic wines and um, wanted to do something with a farm and. Uh, converted it to viticulture. Um, they mm. um, were essentially the first estate to plant Gruner um, on the East Coast. Uh, there's still not a ton of Gruner stateside. 2003. Yeah, and uh, they were early adopters on the East Coast. Um, uh, the Glen is, uh, so Galen obviously is Galen Trox, so the Glen's a reference to this like U-shaped glacial valley. Um, and uh, they work exclusively, almost exclusively with, with you know, Germanic grapes. And, and Austria, truly their inspiration for the sake of their wines. Um, they make a, a couple different gruners. Their entry level is lovely, but that's sourced from UC Davis clones. Um, clones, for the uninitiated, being subtypes of a single grape variety. Kind of like, you know, there are Welsh and Pembroke corgis. Um, you've got, you know, clones of an individual grape, and some clones are greater than others. Um, and very often commercially available clones aren't the most interesting ones. So um, this particular cuvee is called Stone Cellar. They only make, as Andrew referenced, in auspicious vintages. Um, and uh, it is a, uh, a, a sub-parcel of a different clone of Gruner. So um, what, what is, do you know the clone? I, have no, I don't know. I have no fucking idea what the clone is. I don't know if they have any idea what the Let clone is. I, I should have I done a deeper... Dive for the well, sake of. Well, you know, uh, it, it, she doesn't really talk about that. I'll yeah, see if I can but it is it is a separate and distinct clone from uh, the ones they're working with for the regular Gruner, and they do it as a separate bottling. And to my mind, it is the greatest domestic Gruner, um, you know, currently on the market. Hot take. Um, uh, you know, the only I'm trying to think of other. Uh, um, you know, there's some folks on, on on the West Coast making making solid solid Gruner, but um, you know, this this is. Uh, one of my favorites, and, and stylistically um, has more of the ripeness um, that you'd associate with uh, the Vakal Valley. I'm like, I uh, smell it. Greatest, yeah, greatest Gruner Belt leaners. And Gruner can go to this fun, you know, Carmen Miranda tropical place uh, without 
going to a sad Chardonnay collapsing under its own weight place. And uh, has what uh, Germans call Pfeffer, which is like white pepper streak. Um, that's utterly beguiling. And uh, this is just hugely expressive and hugely fun. The winemaking is blessedly simple. Um, and it's a, a true expression of a uh, special place um, and a, a testament to the work that they, they do in the vineyard. Um, Andrew name dropped their daughter, Erin, who studied winemaker, um, uh, studied winemaking rather, um, both at Cornell. Um, UC Davis gets um, a lot of flowers for the sake of being uh, the country's premier school for viticulture. On the East Coast, Cornell is the premier um, institution, and they do a lot more work than UC Davis with cool climate viticulture in particular. Uh, and uh, she studied there, and then she studied, I believe she did some work in Geisenheim as well, which is uh, the premier. Um, it's uh, in the Na, right? Uh, Geisenheim is, yeah, and, and, and it is, it is she like... She worked in the Na. Uh, it is Germany's... Well, usually with Geisenheim, is, you, you do some kind of externship. Okay, um, okay. Uh, Yeah, yeah, um, And uh, so she, you know, did work there. Um, and, oh, this and wine smells subsequently, good. Subsequently come Sorry. Back, subsequently come back, and, and uh, she was uh, um, helming a winery in, in, in Long Island, I believe. For, yes! For a bit, but then, do you know which one? Uh, I do not, actually. Which one? I, I represented it. Oh, brilliant. Do you know? Uh, you'll have B to enlighten me. Bedell. Uh, oh, she cool. She worked at Bedell. Yeah, great. And um, and then she, but she subsequently come back and now running the roost at the parents' estate. And and they're, I think they're happy to have her there and happy to have you know someone with more training um, in the cellar than them uh, running running the roost. And the wines continue to get better, um, uh, vintage by vintage. And and it's a beautiful place to visit. And I can't say enough about it. Um, uh, you've been you've been up there, right? I haven't. I haven't visited yet. I. I but you you end up seeing her at different wine shows and. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I, I met them at Riesling Bandcamp uh, for the uninitiated Riesling Bandcamp. And is, that's in the Finger Lakes, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. So it, it is technically known as FL Excursion. Right. Um, and it is North Riesling America's Band Camp. It is North America's premier uh, trade event for Riesling held every other year. Um, and I'm I'm on the steering committee for that, but. Um, I, I lovingly call it Riesling Bandcamp, and uh, they've been at, at uh, um, uh, the, both the inaugural and, and the second iteration, and they're just lovely people. Um, Stover, uh, what does this taste like to you, um, and what does it remind you of having, I mean, having been to Austria? I, so let me go backwards because, you know, having known Sarah and worked with her, and I've met, I've met Aaron and Galen, of course, um, but I mostly, you know, worked with Sarah and I used to work with her when I had the restaurant menu down in Chinatown. Like I used to buy the wine because one of the ways that I met Sarah at Galen Glen was that she was written about in a book about women winemakers by, um, Leslie Sabraco, who's a West coast wine writer. She has a couple books out and you know, this was again in the, eh, eh, you know, the mid two thousands. It's so weird to talk about these times. It's so long ago. Like, I don't know, 2007, 2008, I read about Sarah and I was like, oh my God, I got to try these wines. Like, because if somebody's making good Gruner Veltliner on the East Coast, I need to know about it. So I contacted Sarah. We had a nice chat. She sent me some samples and I immediately added it to my menu. I poured the, and it was the one that they call Vinology. But back then, I think they had a different name for it. But I never had this wine, the Stone Cellar, until you asked for it. So I have to give you the kudos for it because these are, you know, I would say that, Bill, this is like her reserve, even though it's, you know, reserve is such a stupid term. 
in, in American winemaking because it really doesn't always mean anything. I mean, yes, we know in Europe they have different laws and, you know, you get reserva and those have rules about aging and so on. But, like, this is a step or two. It's really two steps up from her Vinology label. Um, to me, distinctively, it smells like Gruner. I mean, it's got that. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's like Smarat. Uh, this so is... Schmarock uh, for the uninitiated. Uh, we're, we're, <laughs> Sorry, a, I'm no, throw out weird psalm terms. No, no, it's okay. This is a, a nerdy, um, nerdy psalm term. So Schmarock is green in German, and it refers to the emerald green lizard that is a mascot for the greatest wines of the Wachau, which is to say the ripest wines of the of the Wachau. And um, yeah, name drops, you know, Gruner on the West Coast. Uh, the only one I can think of, uh, Graham Totimer and his father, mm-hmm. they make... Um, and Totimer makes... Great yeah, he makes and actually, well, he studied with Emmerich Knoll, so it mm. stands the reason that he makes he makes great Gruner. But like, that's the only one I've ever had to, to rival this, and this is a little cleaner. You know, this is this is a little you know, um, you know, a little saltier on the back end. It, it, it goes to this like ultra ripe, you know, one of those summer peaches that collapses under its own weight in your mm. hand, uh, uh, sort of place, and um. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's got it's, amazing ripeness, but then there's this this you know when you smell it, you get but you get this green. You get the green slash white pepper. It's there, and, and it's just got a lot of body. And I tried to ask her what clone it is. She's not responding, but um, sometimes she's not a good texter. I also wanted to note if she puts this on the lees for an extended period because it does have this texture. I actually I wouldn't be surprised if it's all a little cold soak too. Um, for the sake of it's got this uh, uh, cold soak is is leaving. Um, uh, the the must the grape juice on the skins a bit um, uh, before um, you separate or, or totally press off um, and this has this kind of like uh, like slightly bitter edge almost on the finish like in a little a, bit yeah in a really pleasant way it's almost like um, uh, eating fruit skin you know like peach skin and I mean, uh, this is just an incredible yeah it's a fabulous one incredible I mean if you I would love to throw this into like a Som group tasting and see. If anybody could guess it, no, because I think it's I think it's varietal. It's like varietally correct. It's really varietally correct. Yeah, it's it it, it says Gruner. Um, it says you know um, ultra ripe Gruner, uh, but but uh, it has that like almost like smaragd, you know, bit of it with it with it. It's very it's fat, but it's also kind of austere at the same yeah, time. Yeah, like, yeah. Because the fruit is really it's nose driven, but then on the palate, it's got this leanness. Well, that's a weird. Well, no, so, I mean the, the greatest. I think some of the. Know, what am I trying to say? No, I think some of the some <laughs> what of the. Am I trying to say? No, no. Uh, some of the greatest art in, in life is you know, um, you know the the things that can express you know seemingly contradictory ideas uh, for the sake of you know one metaphor and it, it you know really here is kind of contradictory. Have, here you have you know a wine that's fat but light, um, and and you know there's this great. Uh, we collaborate with this really awesome illustrator named Marie Chevier. She has a um, Instagram handle called Fresh Cut Garden Hose, or she doesn't maintain it as much as she used to. But anyway, she did this one drawing of uh, um, tasting uh, uh, red Burgundy, and and the tasting note was fat but light. And she has this um, float, this like overweight um, cartoon character floating away, but like a parade float. Um, and uh, you know, so like. Uh, uh, a balloon, essentially, that people are, um, mm. you know, uh, holding uh, by by strings, and, and and this one has a little bit of that. You know, it's uh, you know, it is light, but it is you know, you know, opulent uh, by the same circle. It, it, it's a weird way to describe it. It's light, 
it's got freshness, but it's opulent, and I, I eh, it, it is contradictory. But, it, you know, again, if I was blind tasting this, and you know I also work with a lot of Austrian wines. I mean, we've tasted yeah, some yeah. together. I mean, I, this could be a Smaragd, and I wouldn't know. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and I think... Which I think is a testament to what they're doing. No, absolutely. I mean, Smaragd is like some of the best gruner in Austria, right? I mean, at least depending on who you talk to, I mean, it is a category... Of, 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 you know, quality in the Wachau, and this is absolutely in that quality. And it should be said, uh, Pennsylvania makes quite a bit of wine. Um, well, yes, but some of it's not good. Well, mo- most, <laughs> of, most, most of, of it's, it's not most probably it's not good. good. Now, it should be said for the record that California turns out about 84% of the wine that comes out of the United States, and uh, the other 49 states are, are kind of, you know, fighting over that remaining 16%. Washington State is responsible for another, you know, six to seven percent. Yeah, and then New York, and right? then New York would be next, and 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 so like you're talking about essentially like less than ten percent of the pie that you know the remaining forty-seven seven states are divvying up um, uh, amongst themselves, and um, you know some are bigger actors than others. So Pennsylvania makes quite a bit of wine. Michigan actually makes quite a bit of wine. Texas makes quite a bit of wine. Um, well, Texas is definitely. In the top five, uh, it depends on what they're like. Different, well, dep- yeah, right. Stover, they're like different figures. I was actually doing so. There's one one set of uh, um, maths that that cited Texas as number five. There's another set, you know, that 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 was 2022 data that cited like Texas seven. as as eleventh. Okay. Uh, and then uh, concurrently, the the same uh, data that uh, proclaimed Texas as eleventh. Uh, was crowing for PA as, as number four, and then alternatively it's tenth. But you know you have to you have to again we're fighting over fractions of a percent here. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, you know um, the elephant in the room is just the California is the California jaggernaut. But um, you know for the sake of the other forty seven, these are are major these are these are major players, and economically can seem you know kind of um, insignificant, but. Uh, for a lot of these communities, especially rural, rural communities, it makes a big difference for the sake of, of their, their bottom line. And, uh, you know, um, and, and, and hopefully for, um, you know, corners of the country where it's, it's impossible to make a living on agriculture at scale, you know, wine as a luxury good, you know, as a premium agricultural product can, can offer those regions a, a way forward. Um, That's and, true. Absolutely. And, and, and agriculturally can offer them um, a, a more sustainable way forward for the sake of working with, um, you know, a, a product that you can certainly manipulate in environmentally uh, degrading and harmful ways. But uh, the glorious kind of, um, I don't know, synergy of it all is that uh, typically the best wines are made in the ways that are the best for the environment. Um, and so, you know, if you are environmentally conscious, it, it just so happens often that, uh, you know, the wine also is better for it. You know, and, 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 and it's an interesting, um, before we segue into our next state, you know, I think that's one reason why Sarah and Galen do grapes is that the property is not really conducive to many other agricultural endeavors. I mean, there's a lot of rocks. It's hard to run a tractor through it. Um, Grapes love rocky soil, and you know it just it it just makes sense. Plus, um, you know if you read like kind of their topography, there they're on this like one thousand foot 
plateau sort of hill that's constantly windy. She told me that she has hurricane shutters on many of the buildings because it's just sometimes that just it makes its own weather. Yeah, you know, it's so windy there, and that's great for disease pressure. Keeps the humidity down, keeps the bugs down. Yeah, I mean, like wind, wind is a little bit of a Goldilocks thing. You get too much wind, and and the grapes will, you know, shut sure. their pores sure. and you know close, like kind of kind of shut down. But well, um, and they have issues with you know with with sometimes with with moisture there um, and hail too, because you know you think about no, you know, totally. they're a little higher up. Um, thousands not very high. We'll talk about much higher here in a second, um, where hail is a bigger problem. But you know, I mean. Also, too, they only do Germanic grapes. I don't know that we touched on that. Yeah, we did, I and mean, even for the sake of the red. So this is another region that is, is leaning into a particular identity. And the identity is not big fucking red wines. And, and, right. and um, you know, I think that that can be, like, when Sarah and Galen get consumers that just kind of wander in and don't have a full sense of what they do— you know, <laughs> they roll out the reds and, right. you know, it's like, you know, do you have anything bigger? Uh, and, right. And, you know, the, the answer is like, no, this is this is what, like, our biggest red wine is a Gruner Veltliner. You know? Well, yeah, yeah. she has some Cab Franc. Um, I'm not sure that it gets but, bottled every year. but Yeah, but the Cab Franc's not going to do. It's not going to be huge. Yeah, no. exactly. Exactly. And, and, and to the extent that you try to make a huge wine out of it, it's going to suck. Yeah. Um, yeah. She has this interesting red. I, I might have to show it to you sometime. It's, it's a cheeky name. It's called Red German Bastards. Uh, I've had that before. Okay. Yeah, that, Have that we one, tried it? Yeah, okay. that one. I've, no, I've, I've not with but you. You've but you've had I've, it with, with her. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and, and I, again, I really admire uh, those producers that are not trying to be everything to everyone. And, and no. um, agriculturally, that is impossible. You know, at, at, you know, Especially at 1,000 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the base yeah, of the Poconos well, in Pennsylvania. Exactly, exa- <laughs> exactly. You know, you, you work with what nature gives you, and, um, you know, uh, you, you don't try to reinvent the wheel. And, and I think, uh, you know, the stone cellar, Gruner, is, is, is really a, a fine testament to um, uh, the work that they're, they're doing and have done, which brings us to wine from Texas Hill Country. This is right. Lubbock. Well, we, we, we talked about Texas. Lubbock, like, Texas. Sometimes and, it's and Mc, number five. We'll talk, so talk about McPherson. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cede the, the mic to you because these uh, are ostensibly your wines. And this is oh such an icon in, in, the, in the context of Hill Country wine. This well, is like... Not Hill Country, sorry. Well, so, you know, Lubbock isn't considered Hill Country? No, yet? no, sorry. Oh, it's North, North Texas? This is Hill High Plains. High Plains, I apologize. So yeah. Texas has... Hill Country's further west. Uh, no. Hill Country is Austin, so... Oh, fuck. Further south-ish, southeast. Lubbock's kind of like middle north, right? Yeah, like near Amarillo. Okay, heard. Yeah, up in the north, almost in New Mexico. Okay. Almost, well, I have to look at a map, and it's closer to New Mexico than it would be to Hill Country. Okay. So everybody thinks of, like, Texas Hill Country because you hear, Texas Hill Country. We have a restaurant here called Hill Country Barbecue. But there are are hills there. Uh. (laughs) Well, so the funny thing is there are hills in Texas Hill Country. There are no hills in Texas High Plains. Okay. Because it's a a plain. Well, it's a plain. Um, You know, and and I would say to you that... uh, the topography there is more like interior of Spain. Oh, cool. Uh, it's flat and it's high. I mean, it's got both of those things going for it. It's about 33,000 feet, 3,500 feet, depending on where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's around Lubbock. Lubbock is a big college town. Um, you've got Texas Tech. And, you know, uh, Kim McPherson, you, one day we'll have to, he's going to be coming, I think, in the spring. I got to have you meet him because when you meet Kim, like, He's just, 
he's just a force. And you know, like these other producers we've been talking about, he is all about planting and working with the climate and the land. Like he hates the idea of trying to make Texas Cab, Texas Shard, Texas Merlot. I mean, this is people do it, but they're not great, you yeah. know. Um, which, which is, uh, you know, say what, um, you know, what is he leaning into uh, instead of the typical French culprits? Well, so first of all, we have to get a little bit about his background because I would say to you, depending on who you want to talk to, the McPherson family is the 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 founders of the modern Texas wine industry in the sense that his father, who goes by Doc, was the first to open... Doc McPherson. Doc McPherson. An epic Texas epic name. Epic Texas. Yeah, that's a great, a great Texas name. And he was a professor at Texas Tech, and he started experimenting with planting vines in the 60s, and then opened the first post... It's a, it's a mouthful. Post-prohibition winery in Texas. The first one was Llano Estacado, which was opened around Lubbock in the late 70s. And I love the way Kim, t you know, the son, Kim, tells the story. When we built the building, it was built out of cinder blocks. Because, you know, Lubbock actually, had, interestingly enough, used to be a dry city, like up until a certain point. And, like, they built this building out of cinder blocks because, you know, all these crazy gun people out there. No, you're not open no winery up here. We're going to shoot it up. So they oh, build wow. it out of cinder blocks. Wow. It's really uh, funny. Hopefully, that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing uh, Texas accent. You've, yeah, uh, you know, and so <laughs> apparently I do a Kim McPherson <laughs> accent pretty well. He's really funny. Um, anyway, so Kim goes to UC Davis, graduates, you know, um, late 70s, early 80s, works around Napa, and then, you know, he comes Kim, back. Kim being Doc's son. Yeah, Doc's son, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, he's there, there, are his, of, there are a lot of famous... Uh, uh, male Kims in the wine world. I think of like Kim Kim Crawford. Well, Kim Crawford, you know, and he's in their family, um, if I'm not mistaken, Scottish. Okay. I think there's a lot of Scots. Yeah. You know, we know there's a lot of Czechs in Texas, but there's um, a lot of Scots yeah. too. English, yeah. you know, English Scots. Um, Mac and, and it's not McPherson, it's McPherson, Andrew. Okay. McPherson. That's, oh, that's, that's better. That's better. That's McPherson. A better, that's a better, we got to say it right. That's a better Texas accent. Yeah. So... You know, he, he goes to UC Davis, works around Napa, comes back, and then in 2000, so we're in the 22nd year now, he founds this, this urban, it's another urban winery. It's in downtown Lubbock, right off the main street, in the old Coca-Cola bottling building. I love that. Which is like perfect for a winery, you know, from the production aspect. You know, this big old warehouse, it's centrally located. Sterile. It's sterile. Yeah, I mean, they do big weddings and they have dinners and stuff there. But all the vineyards, and he's just like Brian at Left Foot Charlie in Michigan. He partners with these landowners to get the fruit. They have to do what he says. You know, kind of, and he also advises them on what to plant because, you know, with his background and, and working in California and having gone to UC Davis, and now they do have a vineyard. So uh, the McPherson, McPherson Estate Vineyard is literally just down the freeway from downtown Lubbock, and I've been there. It's Old Vine Sangio that was planted in the early 80s, as well as Cabernet Sauvignon. And Kim just rolls his eyes with the Cabernet Sauvignon. He does make wine out of it, um, but pretty much they, they, they do it as a, like a label for, I, I think it was for a, a golf course that's nearby, um, because he doesn't love it. It feels, it feels very country club. What? 
the the cab the cab like uh, you know the members want a cab. Oh yeah, like no, exactly. Cabernet. Cabernet is a very country club thing. So what does Kim do? Well, the wine I poured you is a testament to what he does well. This is the Le Copan White, and interestingly enough, I had an older vintage that I thought would be kind of fun to pop open. This is 2018. Is, is, oh, shut up. Yeah. So you know, it's not super old, but these wines get funkier with age. This is a white Rhone. So we've got Marsan, 32%, Picpole Blanc, 31%. And by the way, the Picpole are all from the um, cuttings from uh, Tablas in, in Paso. Oh, heard. Uh, so, and they're, I mean, they're associated with Bocastel, so I'm right. sure they're originally they're like Bocastel. Right, they're Bocastel yeah. clones. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Kim tells me that uh, the Picpole... They are not allowed by, you know, when you buy and you sign the contract to buy the cuttings from Tablas, you cannot propagate them and sell them to other people or even plant more vines. That's something like, Mons- right. that's like, it's Mons- like a patent. That's like Monsanto. That's like Monsanto. Yeah. Uh, like uh, intellectual property, property yeah, over agricultural. Right. Uh, so Marsan, Pickpool, Viognier, 25%, and Roussan, 12%. This is his white Rhone. It changes every year, whatever, what's going to be in it. And it's completely done as stainless. There's no oak. So I have this hugely ambivalent, um, you know, sort of uh, experience with uh, and in view of Rhone white blends. Mm. Um, very often, I mm. find they taste like um, uh, like Duncan Hines vanilla frosting in a you know desk. Are you talking about like domestic or uh, French? Both, both, okay, a okay. little bit of both. But you know, you, you get it's, it's like Viognier with oak. You know, it's just this oh, like yeah. you know like uh, act of desperation. You know, there was no dessert at hand, so I just ate some vanilla frosting out yeah. of a can, sort of thing. Mm. Um, and but uh, I kind of like doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe maybe as a guilty pleasure, it, it functions. But like, no but more. But not in my wine. No, no, no. No, no more than one sip. And, yeah, sure. And, sure, um, sure, sure, sure. You know, you certainly don't want to drink a full glass of it. So you know, often I find uh, Rhone whites collapse under their own weight, and uh, this doesn't do that. This has uh, um, this lovable, you know, fullness um, uh, to it, um, and it is a, a rich, full-fruited wine that tastes like it's from a dusty, arid, high plain. But by the same token, um, you know, it, it's, it's equally fresh by, you know, any measure. And, um, yeah, it's great. This is honestly the first. I've only had red wines from them before, so oh, this is the first Do you time. remember which red you've had? I can't remember. Uh, I, I think I've had the red equivalent. Okay. There of, is a Copan red. Yeah, yeah, Copan yeah, yeah, red, yeah. yep. Um, There's a windblown red, which is a, another GSM-ish. Yeah. There's a Tempranillo. You know what's interesting, too, is that, so talking about what Kim is passionate about, Kim is all about Rhone. Kim is all about Spain and a little bit getting into Italian because they have that old vine Sangiovese, which, by the way, that wine, because it's like 40-plus-year-old vines, and they're right there in the city limits of Lubbock. I mean, they're off the freeway. It's, it's like, you know, you, you have to understand, like, Texas is like, you know, land for days. Sprawling. Like, you just get out of the city, like, one well, exit, I think, and I you're think in the people, middle of a farm. People have this, like, beatific idea of where their vineyards are, and, and very often, um, you know, there are great vineyards that are not the most beautifully situated in the world. But that, it is beautiful. Out amazing, it is beautiful because there. once you go off that exit, you go down like one mile down the road, you're in the middle of like farm and the vines and Bill. Oh my God, the trunks. I mean, they're like, you know, they're old vine. They're 40 yeah, yeah. years old. And the Sangio, when he does the Sangio, very judicious oak, he hates oak. In fact, he makes this a point when you meet him. 
He goes, I, Andrew, I hate oak. <laughs> I only buy the barrels from Doug Schaefer because I get the old second year hillside select barrels. That's it. I mean, I'm sure there's some other barrels in his I, program. I want to, uh, we should isolate this as a, like, yeah. a, 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 like a sound clip and, and send it. Uh, to him? Yeah. Kim's, well, we'll send it to him. Kim's yeah. way. Just so, yeah, yeah. Just so he can pass judgment on, uh, you know, the like the... The accuracy. He's, he says of, I do a good uh, job. Okay. You okay. know, and by the way, he does not wear boots and a cowboy hat. No, I know. He's but not I one wanna, of those I kind of hear, I want to hear his Andrew Stover impersonation. Oh, now. yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> that would be fine. Um, but, but, like, his Sangio, for example, is so balanced. And in fact, often, he somehow must know people in Tuscany that they submit it to some big Tuscan wine competition, and it gets awards. And then when they find out it's from Texas, like, not only is this it is not like, Tuscan... This yeah. is like the uh, the old like the old El Paso commercials. Of, yeah. It's like uh, <laughs> New York City. Get a yeah. rope. Uh, they find out they're they're, uh, they're Sangiovese, not from Italy, and uh, it's it's killer. I mean, so in whites again, we're we're talking about white roans. He does a Shannon. Uh, his Shannon is killer, especially if we can get some age on it. And that's one of the things that I love about this region is that you know, like this is tasting beautiful, right? Like, sometimes this white roan is a little, it's a little too confectionary, like you were mentioning. It's a little too, when it's young, but after it's been in the bottle and, you know, it's, it's starting to mellow a little bit, um, even though it's a screw-top wine and, you know, it's an anaerobic environment, it's still, like, getting interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's 2018, so it's not the current vintage. The current was 19. They didn't make it in 20. This is a really tough place to make wine, by the way. They have late spring frosts because even though they are, like, on the latitude of Morocco, you know, like southern Spain, Morocco, it's really tough because of where they are. They're far enough south so that, you know, but, but by the way, they're going to be getting blasted right now with this winter storm that's coming through. They're going to be down to like 10 degrees. You know, they get winter kills sometimes. But then in the summer, they can have the pop-up thunderstorms and the hail problem. Um, so that, you know, and then they can have a cool fall. Because of the elevation. And they get, they get like some weird uh, insect action there. They have like these glassy winged sharpshooters mm. that occasionally come through and devastate the vineyards. And Yeah, uh, that brings the, the Pierce's disease. I don't know how much of a problem that is there, actually. I mean, you would know more than me. Um, this is all just like randomly academic. I've, I've no, you know, experience on the ground with, uh, um, you know, the plague of locusts that can, you know, engender <laughs> viral, engender, engender, glassy wing well, sharpshooters. No, no, no. They're, they're um, like, they're like grasshoppers essentially, but, uh, yeah, the glassy wing sharpshooter is more like a, oh God, it's like a sucking insect. And what it does is it, it, it passes a bacteria. Oh, oh, yeah. It's, it's not a, it's not a locust. It's a tiny little hopping bug. I don't know. I've never seen one. Cause I hope, thank God. I don't think we have them here. Cause God knows I don't need them in my, no, no, no. But yeah, to my, to my, you know, Estimation, it's a, a biblical plague that, on top of the hail and all the other things they deal with, it I mean, infects occasionally. They uh, probably do have some of them there, but yeah, yeah. I know it's more of a problem in Arizona. Yeah, well, it's just, um, which is a Pierce's great, disease. I mean, it's a huge problem. Which is a great, which is a great segue because yes. we, we have We're yet to talk Arizona. about um, uh, Caduceus Sellers. We got to uh, do it. The man, the myth, the legend. Maynard James Keenan. Did you pull a music clip? I did not. Um, okay, maybe in post production. Um, so okay. uh, I gave you the two clips. The lead, the lead singer of Tool, um, a perfect circle, and his new band. 
Crucifer. Uh, makes wine. Um, uh, but he makes wine first. He is the lead singer of those acts second, to the extent yeah. that um, his touring schedule revolves around uh, the vineyard schedule. Yeah, and uh, he is no dilettante. You know, this is yeah. a huge passion. He's, he's an incredibly fascinating uh, individual. Uh, he has two labels. Uh, Caduceus is a, a nod to um, Greek mythology. Uh, the scepter and, of Hermes. Exactly. Um, uh, he has a, another vineyard and project called Merkin, um, for those of you playing along at home, that is a pubic wig, um, and uh, the label is um, consistent uh, with with the name um, for the sake of like a Da Vinci etching and uh, strategically positioned grapes. Um, but you know, it, it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating project. You know, mm. I, I can't. I can't say I came to his wines as a huge Tool fan. Me either. Uh, but, <laughs> but by the same token, um, you know, it, it's like uh, the Zoolander, like Sting. Do I listen to his music? No. But I'm happy that he's making it, you know? And, and I, I feel that way um, about uh, Maynard, Maynard James. Uh, it should be said that, like, the Maynard is an act of self-invention. He added that, uh, like, in, in, in art school. What, the James uh, part? No, the Maynard part. Uh, oh yeah, is an affectation. Oh, is this okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. By Which, the way, he's from Michigan. Uh, another Midwesterner. I think yeah. he's from Ohio, dude. Uh, no, you sure about that? I don't know. We always talk about Michigan because he goes to Traverse City pretty frequently, and he knows some of my guys up there. And um, I can ask him. I can text him right now. Well, <laughs> I mean, if only there was a way uh, for the sake of the internet to uh, um, figure this out. Google but it. Um, at any rate, uh, tell us about. Wikipedia. Tell us about. It doesn't matter. Tell us about what well, we're drinking. Well, really what we need to talk about is wine, because I think that, like, you know, certainly McPherson is a really exciting project, and I think that, you know, McPherson is working to put Texas on the map. And, you know, one of the things about Texas, before we finish, finish the Texas, I want to go back. You know, there's, like, five or six, I'm not going to go with one number, viticultural, American viticultural areas that are actually, like, you know, sponsored by the TTB in Texas. So there's all these different regions. Now we go to Arizona and we're going to more high desert. We're going to like Argentina type elevation. Um, and I feel like, you know, Maynard is going to put it on the map because he's the largest um, owner now of vineyard sites. Um, and they're all very different. And he's very, very passionate, just like Kim McPherson, about planting to the climate and the land and what makes sense. Yeah, this is, this is a great quote from um, Do you have a good quote? Go Maynard James. Uh, he says, so he's in, it should be said too, he's in like central northern Arizona. The winery is, yes. Yeah. So the winery yeah. is in Jerome, which is near Sedona. It's an old mining town, super fun to visit. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, haunted hotel to stay in. Tasting room down the street. Um, most a lot of the vineyards are up and around that area, but then he's also got a site down in the south. But what's this quote? So the quote is uh, just uh, about his uh, his vineyard acre. So he says, "This is a prime spot for vineyards, an untapped resource." But the master plan is to have the Merkin Vineyards bed and breakfast set up for you 
when California drops in the ocean, <laughs> beachfront property, and the new Napa Valley, you got it. Uh, which, you know, which feels like a, a perfect, Maynard is a perfect so cheeky. Yeah, I yeah. love all of the little. He's, and you know, spending time with him too, and like, uh, he goes over my head a lot. Like, I don't understand. I mean, I don't know. I take a lot of things at just face value, and he's got all these things going i mean he's an artist i mean let's be real yeah i feel like i feel like he's always got like dual meanings for the sake he's, of yeah uh, i mean he's re- he we've worked around the market before uh, and when i'm in arizona i see him you know and he knows that i'm not like i'm not totally there because sometimes i feel like i like it's like whoosh over my head um i'm sure he enjoys that though eh, i don't know i mean but we connect on the wine level you know it's like oh, about the passion yeah, yeah. because you know, certainly we both know people that are super passionate about what they're doing. Maynard is like a step up from that. I mean, if that's possible. Because his whole, like, purpose now, besides the music, you know, the music is just, eh, I don't want to say the music is a sideshow, but the music is a very important part of his life. But, like, now the wine, it's all about uh, the wine. He strikes, he strikes me very much as an artist to, you know... Um, delves into different sort of mediums. Right, and, and, and this is where we are now. Yeah, we are exactly. now the artist in being a farmer, growing grapes, and, you know, turning them into art. So talk to us about this particular canvas, sir. So this canvas, as he calls it, a template. Uh, if you look okay. at his website, he lists out the different templates. Okay, I like that. Um, so he's already kind of leaning into that art thing. Um, this is the first, I think it's the first, first or second vintage of the Northern Arizona fruit. This is Syrah? Uh, correct. So this is the Premier Paso. It tastes, it tastes very Syrah. This is Premier Paso. And Premier Paso, I've known Maynard since, I don't know, over 10 years. Um, he started the project, Caduceus, I think in, I couldn't find a year, but I want to say it was around 05, 06, and one of the first wines that he produced and it was from California fruit at the time because in the beginning he was sourcing from friends it was premier paso because premier paso means the first step so this was the first blend um and i believe it started out with Syrah and viognier but as we know um from cote roti you know you 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 add the the viognier in small quantities to bring up the the aromatics and um the delicacy of some of the Syrah notes he likes to use Malvasia Bianca. I like that. Um, in fact, this is uh, the first time I've ever seen Durif, Durif in the blend, Petite Syrah. No, oh, cool. Um, so this is 85% Syrah, 10% Durif. Is that my saying it right? Durif? I think Durif. But, Durif, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Petite Syrah. Uh, I like the name Durif better. Yeah. Even yeah, though yeah. it kind of sounds like kind of, I don't know, it has a bad sound. Petit Syrah sounds better. Okay. Uh, to some people. And 5% Malvasia Bianca. So this is from a vineyard site near Sedona, like a little outside of Sedona. It's, it's in Cornville, I believe. It's the Elefante Blanc. Um, it's 3,400 feet above sea level. Um, everything is hand-picked, hand-sorted. And he's very good friends with um, uh, Vietti in Piemonte, Italy. Oh, yeah. Um, because he has family and we had uh, one of our form, we actually had one of our former employees working harvest there this year. You know, he's and and that thing that's cool about Maynard is that like because of his because of his passion, like he's reached out to some of the best in the business internationally to get some tips. And he does this 
submerged cap fermentation. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Which, you know, it's just Vietti's thing. And he's got this, you know, you can't buy the equipment for that. You have to make it. I mean, I'm, maybe they make it now, but it's a thing that Vietti is sort of known for. And Maynard kind of rigged up a tank or several to do this. Um, and that is this wine, which um, it's the first time I'm having this vintage. And I think it's exciting, too, because this fruit generally used to come from southern Arizona. Because if you think about the state of Arizona, um, the, the winery is in central north, so Sedona. This is the Verde Valley area. It's 3,500 feet-ish to 4,000. He's got a lot of vineyards up there. You know, but the problem up there is that they get late spring frost. So then he's got another site all the way down in Wilcox, which is Cochise County, which was one of the counties that did not want to certify the election in Arizona recently, by the way. But Cochise County is also a very important wine grape growing region. Um, and it has, um, in fact, it, I think it has its own AVA now, Wilcox. W-I-L-L-C-O-X. It, it makes sense to me that you're a, uh, an expert on the American viticultural yes. area. Yes, I mean, I know. Well, and, and all these states are trying. Now, Verde Valley has its own. Uh, so Arizona, I think, has three AVAs. So the, so the uninitiated American viticultural areas are. It's like an Appalachian. Sort of. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's like an Appalachian without any of the things that make an Appalachian uh, important uh, other yes, than geographical less, criteria. Less, yes. Uh, because uh, in the European system, uh, it carries with but it. But the soil does have to be distinctive. Yeah. I mean, it carries with it the weight, the burden of expectation for, um, you know, merits of quality. And, and it could be over restrictive in, in some eyes. And, um, but uh, it carries with it all sorts of obligations vis-a-vis uh, -vis how you work the vineyards, your yields, how you make the wine, etc. Uh, the American system is just geographically based. So the ABA system just uh, essentially certifies that a wine is from a particular place that has a particular identity. Correct. Um, but you know, by the way, it's a very long process to get it these is, it areas. It is. It's torturous. Um, it's torturous. It, you have to have a certain number of acreages planted, certain number of producers in the region. And so Wilcox has its, I think, let's see. No, well, this is Verde Valley. So but um, so they have another site down there, and that's a little easier. I mean, it's, it's not easy in general, but it's less spring frost because it's almost in Mexico, and it's higher elevation. This, this, these southern Arizona sites go from like 4,000 up to 5,000. Oh, wow. And this is like Argentina. Yeah. You know, these are some of the highest... Well, they're not the highest sites in America because those would be in Colorado, but these are some... This gives California a run for its money in elevation, and it's the only reason it works in Arizona is the elevation. Yeah. Because you're not going to be growing grapes in, like, Phoenix, Scottsdale, where it's, like, you know, 700 feet above sea level and 120 degrees in the summer. Yeah, totally. These areas only top out, like, in the 90s, maybe 100 sometimes, but it's the cold nights that really, you know, make it possible. Diurnal shift. Diurnal shift. You got diurnal it. Diurnal shift. Which so is what a great, did you think of this? A great, it's beautiful, right? A great punk band name. Um, that would be a good shift. punk band name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Maynard, you need a new band. Yeah, exactly. Diurnal shift. Diurnal shift. I like that for him. Um, this is beautiful, uh, no, right? I, I dig it. Um, you know, it's got like this precocious Aussie Shiraz level fruit, but in a very tasteful, it's very fruity, meaty, um, you know, kind of like uh, dried black olive sort of way. Um, and it's co-fermented, by the way. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I dig that. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's 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 a, you know, 
bombastic, fuller-fruited wine befitting its, you know, kind of uh, lead singer, but by the same token, elegant and thoughtful and sophisticated. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, um, Maynard James himself, you know, has these, like, hidden depths that you might not other, otherwise um, expect of uh, someone that names a winery after a pubic wig and has a band <laughs> called Tool. Um, yes, so, yes, exactly. Huzzah. Huzzah to you. Uh, Manor James. Um, uh, Stover, we've got to... Uh, I know, we got to wrap. Yeah, so I, I always close things out as threatened with a bit of verse, and um, I wanted to... Do we have a few minutes, though, to... Of course we do. No, no, um, because uh, Sarah texted. Well, no, come on, so that'll be the big reveal afterwards. So, okay, um, so you want to do your you want to do your thing? Yes, okay. because um, uh, you represent wine from Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, and to clarify, uh, I did check the... Uh, um, interwebs, and uh, uh, Manor James was born in Ohio. He may... He may he uh, might have spent formative time in Michigan. Okay. Um, so, um, you I know, think his, you can claim him as your own. One of his... Maybe he has, maybe like... Maybe his dad lives in Maybe Michigan. he has a Michigan oven mitt um, in, maybe, his, in his maybe. house. Maybe, yeah. Um, I think but, we all do. Yeah, exactly. Um, but at any rate, um, W.S. Merwin is another Midwesterner, um, mm. but he um, is a former poet laureate who settled in Hawaii. Um, which appeals to me because you represent a wine from I Hawaii. I have the wines from Maui, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, which are pineapple wines, are they not? Uh, they d- are of growing grapes. You'll have to check that out. Yeah, cool, cool. Uh, but yes, it's the Maui sparkling pineapple wine, which, by the way, has been out of stock since over 18 months now because they don't have enough labor to pick the pineapples. Oh, wow. That's and a, that's they're keeping all the stock of the Method Champenois pineapple wine on, at the winery. That's crazy. For the tourists, um, which I'm very upset about. Yeah, yeah. Um, at any rate. It's a really fun wine for the holidays. Um, I know. Well, we'll get there. But uh, um, W.S. Merwin um, uh, established a, a nature conservancy in his, in his own name. Uh, passed away uh, recently. He is one of my favorite American poets. Um, mm. This is a poem called Unknown Bird. Unknown Bird. Unknown Bird. Oh. Out of the dry days through the dusty leaves far across the valley... Those few notes never heard before. One fluted phrase floating over its wandering secret all at once wells up somewhere else and is gone before it goes on, fallen into its own echo, leaving a hollow through the air that is dry as before. Where is it from? Hardly anyone seems to have noticed it so far. But who now would have been listening? It is not native here. That may be the one thing we are sure of. It came from somewhere else, perhaps alone. So keeps on calling for no one who is here, hoping to be heard by another of its own unlikely origin. Trying once more the same few notes that began the song of an oriole last heard years ago in another existence there. It goes again. Tell no one it is here, foreign as we are, who are filling the days with a sound of our own. I love that because, you know, I feel like there's so much double entendre with some of the things that, like with wine. Like these are fighting to have their song heard. That was, that was a thought. And I think you, you are, you know, the unlikely Oriole, uh, you know, on the lookout for other warblers singing, singing the same tune, man. Uh, what, did, uh, what did you hear from uh, Sarah? Oh, so we just have an update, Sarah. Troxel finally, we'll finally picked up her phone. The, we'll have to the like stone the... cellar is, yes, our best fruit, and it rests on the leaves until bottling because I mentioned, you know, it's yeah, got yeah. this, this uh, no racking. It's just all set, cold settled. 
Um, it's the oldest planting of the unknown clone. Unknown. You, you mentioned that she has clones one and three, which are different. Yes. From the original planting. Um, and she says... Looks like you're having fun because I took a picture of you. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Sent it to her with you nice. with the headphones on. I, like I love it. I like that. Um, but yes, I, I guess I am the warbler uh, in a sense. No, no, to, you're the uh, you know you're 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 recording the songs. You're recording the songs, Silver. Um, so with uh, Maynard. Uh, yeah, exactly. What is what is what is next for you? Um, for the sake of you know um, terra incognita when it comes to uh, domestic wine. Uh, what's the next? Discovery, you know, what are you, what are you excited to bring to market that uh, you have yet to? I don't know. You know, this it's a challenging thing to sometimes bring these things to market. Um, I don't know. I don't really have anything I'm going to reveal yet. You know? Okay. Okay. Um, you can hold your cards close to your vest. That's yeah, okay. I think and, it's always and, good. Uh, um, and then, then last, I, I want to give you a chance. So, you know, I think a lot of people listening. Um, you know, to the extent that there are a lot of people listening, you know, they might, they might wonder, you know, why do I drop, you know, a, a certain thing? Why should I, um, you know, uh, wait, in, well, no, why, why in favor of an Austrian Gruner that I know is, you know, world class, should I try this Gruner Veltliner from Pennsylvania? Why instead of Cote Roti do I try this, you know, Arizona? Um, Syrah blend, etc. You know, you know why drop the familiar in favor of the unexpected? You know, this was, and I, and and probably it's a good thing for me not to remember this writer's name. Um, but I once had dinner with a writer who uh, a nameless, was, anonymous writer. Well, yes, and it's probably good because it's not good to like you know because this is kind of a negative. Okay, and we okay. were but we were dining in Boulder. I was on a, a jaunt of some sort with a bunch of wine writers and wine people, and we were in Denver, but we went to Boulder to Frasca. You know, of course, you go to Frasca. Oh, uh, yeah. Where so else this, do you go? Yeah, so this is uh, um, helmed by... Right, uh, Bobby Stuckey. A seminal, um, you know, a world-class sommelier. Yeah, and, and a right. world-class yeah. sommelier, own master som. And this wine writer says to me, why does it matter that... Because we were at a Colorado wine conference. Why does it matter? Why should we forget about... Why do we give a rat's ass to Colorado's right, it's making exact, wine? But yeah, it's, yeah. it's the same thing of you're asking. Why do we give a rat's ass about Sarah and, and the Galen Glenn or Brian or Kim McPherson or what Maynard's doing? You know, I think at some level, like, these wines, while they do have some old world, you know, sensibility to them, you know, where you can compare the Gruner to, say, Austria... It's different, and it's also supporting people in our own backyard sometimes. I mean, you know, don't we want to try to, you know, don't we want to try to support products that are made around our own country, right, or our own backyard? I mean, this is the story of local, local farmers, local meats, local wine. I mean, when the wines are world-class, when they can be compared on the world stage, you know, the Gruner, to the, the wines of Austria or what have you here. I mean, don't you want to support that? We're not saying get rid of drinking your French wine or what have you. It's about exploring. It's about, you know, supporting American entrepreneurship. I mean, right? To an extent. I mean, that's kind of where I feel it's important that these people are doing what they're doing, if that makes any sense. No, you're, you're killing it. Um, and as a fellow American entrepreneur, I... 
um, resonate. I with mean, that. we're all entrepreneurs in yeah. a way, right? Like I, we want to, it's not like we want to be better or emulate the Europeans or what have you with what we're doing. I mean, I don't think Garrett's up to get, Gera, Sarah and Galen sat out and said, hey, we're going to grow Austrian Germanic varietals and try to make them better than Germany or Austria. We want to make them different, but we want them to be distinctive. But then you say, you know, you say, listen, I taste this Gruner and I can tell that it's Gruner, but it's different. It's got a place. And I think, you know what? It's just like all these other wine regions in the world. Like, you know, we're not, let's forget about America for a minute. You know, think about Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Why do we care? Because some of the wines are distinctively different than the counterpart of the old world, you know, the classic, if you will. And I think that's cool. And it's different. And it's exciting. Plus, you know what? I love to travel. And if, you know, especially when you can't get away, if the travel means that I got to pour a glass and close my eyes and like reminisce of a place maybe I haven't been to uh, or a place I've been to, then the wine can take me there. I love that. So Okay, we, that's going way too no, far. No, that's great. No, that's what just, you asked about. No, that's perfect. I, I think here's to closing our eyes, taking a sip, and listening to an unfamiliar song. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having and, me. Yeah, uh, Andrew Stover, uh, it has been a pleasure. Uh, as a word reminder, if you like the sound of what we're drinking, um, all of these wines, and I can promise that this time will be available at uh, Revelers Hour, our wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Hotel studios. I hope you all uh, have a fabulous end to your year. Stay tuned and stay thirsty as ever for more of the universe in a glass. <laughs>